that you're here. As we were in between services, we welcomed uh, 17 new members to the church today. That was pretty exciting. Good stuff. We have a few in here. Yeah, you can clap for them. Uh, if you were a new member, we welcomed uh, this this Sunday. Stand up where you are. Go ahead and stand up. I know you've had enough attention today, but that's good. Hey, welcome those folks near you. That's great. Great job. Awesome. You know, as I was pondering this, we, Donna and I have been here now as part of the Castle family for about 13, uh, just a little over a year. And so when we hit the year mark, of course, we reflected a bit and thought about the last year and the journey and what that's been like and what it means to be a part of this family. At one point during the year, you know, we spent all time, I did, you know, thinking about the history of this church and where it's been and where we are right this moment and where God is leading us and all those kinds of things. In the middle of that, Cindy, our awesome administrator, I like to know Cindy, she opened up this, this book that I brought out today that was sitting back in the office under some shelves and she opened it up and this was a, a fascinating time for me. It had been sitting there for a long time. It's about 12 years old. And this was a sort of a church directory, if you will, that the church had about 12 years ago. It would sit out in here in the lobby. Uh, well, not here in the lobby, because the church didn't meet here at that time, but in the lobby. And folks could come up and cruise and, you know, oh, that's who that is, and, and just kind of be sure they knew people and a little bit of history about folks. And so I began flipping through it. And I saw people, I, I mean, I know most of them in here, it's just even pictures are mounted and some details about their lives. It was incredible for me to look at this and, and just kind of think back about the history of this church and the people that have come before us. And as I looked through, like I said, I knew most of the names, uh, it, it, if not personally, by reputation maybe, and uh, some folks aren't here anymore. I, I pulled out a couple of pictures and scanned them for you just so you could enjoy my own fun. And so... The first one I pulled out was Mark and Barb Welling. And so, I don't know if you know who Welling is. Uh, you might say, well, that's Barb. Who is that man with her? Um, and that's Mark Welling before he had an incredible season of, of weight loss and two surgeries. They were in first service, and I teased them that there's two of Mark in this picture, and only one now in our church. And he lost almost a whole Mark. And uh, and so, I knew his story because I sat down and spent some time with Mark and heard all about his experience and his history and I, I, you know, just really uh, love him to death and enjoy getting to know him. But then when I flipped the page and saw his picture, I thought, that's what he's talking about. Of course, the context made sense to me because this is who he was. And now I know him and you know him in a very different capacity. Of course, Barb hasn't changed a bit in 12 years. And then I stumbled across him. One of the first people I met when I got to know Paso's people was uh, this gentleman. His name's Brian Speed. Brian's right here at the the sound booth, and Kim's right in front of them, and they both take this picture. So, the, the most changed individual in this picture, of course, is Tori. Because Tori is now, is she 13? She's 12, and uh, she looks like she's 13, which is not what that was here, right? And there's little, little Tori, and what I didn't know was I'm reading some of the details in this, is that her name is Torrance. What a beautiful name. I had no idea that was her. I just assumed it was you know, something else short for Tori, but there are the Speeds, of course, get to know them, and, and they, of course, haven't changed really. I know they think they have, but they haven't changed much at all. And so then, as I'm flipping through this and I'm pondering it, next to the wall that I pass every day, multiple times, is this document. This document is the charter for this church. And on this document, there are the signatures of 57 people 
who decided to make a church when there was no church. Now, you got up today and decided you were going to go to church. And you knew where church was. And you knew what time it was. And I won't say you're not grateful, but most of us probably took it for granted that the church was going to happen today. And then we would walk in and get to have a cookie and maybe meet some people, a little coffee, sit down, check the church box, and go on about their day. But these people, these people dreamed and prayed and showed up when there was no church. And now there is one. And the names on this list, some of them you would recognize if you took time to read it. Again, I'll pass it every day. Often take time to look at the names on the list. And you'll see names like Nicholas and Heather, who sang today, and Jeff. You'll see names like Habertate. All of the Habertates are on here, including Mark and Diana. You see names like me. Families that you're familiar with. These are people that decided that they would help make a church, a new church. Do we need more churches? Yes, we do. To be places where people can discover the grace of Jesus in new and different ways, absolutely, all the time. As I ponder our 17 new members and the members that we've added over the last year, where God is leading us and where we have been, this is what I know for sure, that as we stand at this crossroads of time, and that crossroads of time is positioned by a past and future. The past we know, the future is uncertain. What we have is this moment for us to connect to one another. And when we connect to each other at this little crossroads of time, well, scriptures have a name for it. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. John's reference the, the use of the word church if you were here when we started this series 10 weeks ago, we spent a good bit of time talking about the history of that word and how it really is a, a, a not a great word to describe what we do. But it came from sort of a German background and it really occurred when the state and the church was connected and church buildings began to go up prior to this. Church met in homes and underground in places where well, people gathered because the New Testament Greek word that we translate church is really the Greek word ekklesia, which has nothing to do with a location, a place, a building, a time. We misuse the word and we don't understand it. We say it's time to go to what? Kickoff is at 12. I'm not going to. Right, right. So how we use the word? And when we use this word, we, we begin to believe that church happens at a place within certain walls, that it starts at 1045 and it ends at 11, and I can't get the time straight in my head either. And so when we do that, we misunderstand the nature of God's people and why he has brought us together. Ecclesia helps. This word ecclesia, it means called out ones. But Paul takes it even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he does so because he's talking to an ecclesia, a group of people, in a place, at a time. And he wants to communicate to them something about their identity. And their identity 
human body has many parts, right? Well, this would be true, right? Do you remember that song we sang as kids? Where the song you sang and it goes something like, how's it go? Somebody help me with it. It's, uh, heads and... Right, you know it. Stand up with me. That's awesome. Go ahead, stand up. Stand up wherever you are. Yes, yes, right, right. Now you, now you won't do this the rest of your life. You'll remember this moment, though, the rest of your life. And so how's the song go? You sing it with me, Josh, and inside with him over. He's Canadian. He doesn't know what it means. Our body parts are. How's it go? And say that again, right? You have arms. Point to your body parts. And 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 more time. You guys are so silly. Maybe I give yourself a hit. What seven body parts we listed? Paul says the human body has many parts. So Paul didn't even understand what he was saying when he said it. And how true and deeply significant it is. How many parts were more than your head and your shoulders and your knees and your toes and your eyes and your ears and your mouth? How many bones do you have? Do you remember this from biology? So close to a tree, to her six. That's right. But did you know this? And of course, this is a little bit different for everybody. If you study this, you'll find it out. It's a little creepy. You can do it on your own. It's a little bit different for everybody. But when you're born, you have 270 bones. And now you have significantly less. Don't ask me where they go. I'm not a doctor. I'm not the medically trained one in my family. But this is true. And of course, that, of course, just begins to scratch the surface of what Paul said. The human body has many parts. The DNA in one of your cells has three billion base pairs. It's made in a coil, a helix of a helix of a helix of a helix. And it's so intertwined that if you were to take the DNA parts of one cell and put them end to end, they would stretch out to about two meters. If you were to take the DNA parts of all of your cells, they would stretch around our solar system twice. Paul was right. The human body has many parts, but then he says this. But the many parts make up one whole, one whole body. And so it is, and now these next three words, Paul will introduce a metaphor that will last for eternity about who the church is. It's an analogy. It's a, a piece that will help us understand something about the church that we didn't know before. This is true about even the name Ecclesia, called out one, the called out community. They're committed to a cause. They work together in the context of a relationship. But now Paul is going to refer to the church, the Ecclesia, as the body of Christ. This is different. And it's key to our identity as a people. It helps us understand who we are and how we're supposed to operate with each other and what we're supposed to be about. Moving on to say this in the chapter. Now you, you, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. You don't become a part of it because you fill out a membership app. You don't become a part of it because you attend on Sunday. 
become a part of it when you decide that Jesus is your Lord and that you find no other way to peace and life and redemption other than surrendering your heart to Him first. And then you become part of the body of Christ. And you are part of it. So the church, he says, the ecclesia, it's not an organization. But that's probably one of the most hurtful and damaging understandings of the church that we can have. It's a, it's a family. It's a list of names, people, stories, pictures. It's a snapshot in time about where somebody is in Christ and how God has brought them out of darkness into light and what will happen with their life and how they give themselves over to all of that over time. You are a part of the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. The body of Christ, it is a living, breathing organism. And of course, that exists only because of our relationship to each other. Only because I know you, and you know me. And if you don't know me, and you know somebody near you, and you know somebody connected to this body, that's what makes us the body of Christ. So Paul's spent a lot of Corinthians pointing out the problems of the church. This is the problem. You don't have unity. You're, you're, you have factions and divisions. This is how you fix that. This is how you move in the right direction. Now as he begins to wrap up his first letter, he's going to spend time developing this analogy, this metaphor, so that the people of Corinth have something to grab a hold of, something with handles on it, so they can live this out and walk it out every day of their life. Because this is where your faith resides. It doesn't reside in this building with these walls. Your faith resides when you show up at work and you try to be who Jesus has called you to be in the middle of a, a conflict or a discussion or an issue, or you're feeling like you don't have anything left to give to the people around you at all, but you decide to love anyway. This is what the body of Christ is. So what makes a healthy body, Paul talks about, at least a couple of pitfalls that can make it hard for us. And so we'll hit these two, and it'll give you a big picture of what he's talking about. He talks about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These couple of pitfalls that can make it hard for you and I to be the body of Christ. Here's the first one. He'll talk about it this way. Now, if the foot should say, now Paul's going to get incredibly practical. He's going to use this image or this metaphor of the body, and he's going to get just incredibly detailed, and it's a beautiful picture. And so you have to put yourself in Paul's mind and imagine these very things happening and understand what he's doing with this image of the body. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, and so in your mind ought to be this foot with a mouth on it, because the foot's saying something, right? And as the foot says this thing, it says this preposterous idea, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. I love this imagery. But of course the foot wants to be a hand, doesn't it? Come on, the foot's just nasty, isn't it? That's why you covered it today, isn't it? I mean, it's all callous, it's got toe jam, I don't even want to know, right? Soon you have some ingrown toenails. It's just awful. It's awful. So we cover it up and we, ah, we do, we, we put sanders on and we go through pedicures. We do all kinds of things to make it look pretty. But at the end of the day, you know what? The foot just eats. And of course the foot looks up at the hand and says, oh, you're so elegant. I mean, you're nice. You're pretty. You're soft. You're smooth. You're on display all the time. I, I would love to be you. This is what the foot thinks. The foot says, and you've got opposable thumbs? 
Christ. Those are awesome. I mean, look at the chip foot. That's how you make a foot, right? The sun that hangs out there. Wouldn't you want one of those for your feet? Of course you would. And this is what the foot thinks. I just wish I was a hand. In community, we come together. The body of Christ together. And when we come together, we want to bring something that matters, don't we? But we want to show up. And sometimes it's because we want to be noticed. We want people to know us and understand who we are. Often it's because we've been made to matter. We're made in God's image that God desires for us to bring what we have to the table. Build His kingdom, show love and mercy, help them grow. And when we do that, we often find ourselves in a place wondering, how come we can't bring what somebody else brings? How come we don't have their talent or their ability? And so Paul pulls out the very first little pitfall. He says, even though a foot would say that to a hand, this is crazy, I would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. So Paul's saying, this first little track is comparison. When we stop and we think, oh, I wish, I wish that's a foot face. I wish I was as pretty or elegant or useful as a hand. I wish I sang like her. I wish I had his influence. I wish I had that family's money. If I did, boy, that church would listen to me every time I spoke. I wish. I wish I didn't have the past I had. I wish I had something else. And when we compare, we find ourselves in a place of believing that there's something better on the other side of my talents or my abilities or my gifts that somebody else has that I don't have. It always leads to one of these things. starts usually with envy and jealousy. And often, of course, results in insecurity and pride. And of course, it seems innocent enough. I just don't feel good about enough about myself. I just feel a little less than part of my upbringing or part of my experience when I'm walking to the church because people are always posing and strutting. And when this occurs, when these seeds are sown, when these things take root, but what James says is in the church, when you find pride and selfish ambition, there you find every evil practice. And Paul gives us the antidote for comparison. If the body is going to be healthy, Paul tells us what healthy looks like. And here's what he says. Again, grab the imagery. Don't miss the picture of what Paul's saying. If the whole body were an eye, picture it, right? This is where cartoons come from, right? These ridiculous notions. If the whole body were an eye, how would you what? If you're here. Or if your whole body were here, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part just where he what? That's where you are. That's where you are. Right where he wants you. For what purpose? I don't know. How do you mean you? What's he guiding you toward? Who to love? What to offer? How to give? I'm not talking about inside these church walls. I'm talking about your job and your neighbors and your friends and your family. He has put you right where he wants you. And he's given you everything you need to use the gifts that God has given you in unique and powerful ways. 
your pain. And God wants to use you to give them a living, breathing example of what it means to know Jesus and what that looks like. Put you right where he wants you. And Paul says, this key picture. And so as you struggle with this comparison, and we all do at some point in time, we all struggle with this idea that I'm not where I should be or I'm less than. If you struggle with this comparison, there are one of two things that are going on. Either you haven't found the place where you need to be, and that means you need to keep walking, keep stepping, and looking to see where God can use you and how he can use you right where you are. Or it means that ambition has stolen your gratitude that you want what you want. And either will leave you in a place where the body is unhealthy and problem. Here's the second for Paul. Paul talks about it this way. Yeah, I cannot say to the hand, say what? I don't need you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is preposterous, isn't it? Yeah, I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you because you work together. And you know this is true because you know what it's like to sit at a table and your eyes see something that you need to pick up to reach and clean a fork. And so you see this item that you need to pick up and you see it. And your eye can see it, your eye identifies it, and there's a difference your brain does between a fork, a knife, and a spoon. But it is your hand, it is your hand that reaches out and picks it up. That's your hand. The eye is useless with information. But how am I going to get this food to my mouth? And how will my teeth chew? And how will my stomach digest all these parts put together? I don't need you. Can you imagine that being something? that one part of the body would say to the other, I don't need you. So Paul gives us the handle for that too. He spends a few verses talking about the parts in our body that are less presentable and how they get greater honor. Every time I read that, I think about us as a church and what we do and how we operate as a body. But then he goes on to describe how we're interconnected. And so the problem that we have when we don't understand this is we live in independence. We're seeking it. We want it. We desire it. And independence always leads to these things, separation and distance, indifference and isolation, always. And let's be honest, we go most of our lives looking for and desiring, trying to achieve independence. We're growing up in our family and we're under our parents' thumb, and we're under their provision, and we say, I can't wait till I'm on my own. And we enter college, and we learn, and we're subject to the grades given to us by our professors. And then we're under a different regime, and we find ourselves working for the man or a boss, and we desire to have our own business, our own independence. And so then we find ourselves working for ourselves, and the only result is, is now we're beholden to our customers, and independence is this mirage that keeps getting pushed out further and further. Within the church, it's worse. Within the church, independence keeps you stuck and away from the people that you need to experience grace with and for. The body of Christ grows in depth only when we live not independently, but interdependently. Only when we find ourselves relying on one another. And so this is how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12. He says this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. 
this sense. This is how parts work when they're connected to one another. You remember maybe nine months ago we had Steve and Veronica Jocelyn on our stage and they told their story about Steve's uh, problem with his liver and the resulting uh, transplant and the grass were part of the story as well. Nina and Michaela. And as we told this story, for some of us in the room, it was a name and a story that we're disconnected to. We don't know them or we don't know their story. But for me and for many others who know the Johnsons, it was very different than just a story. And so we saw some tears rolling. We just saw this deep compassion. And we were living out in the middle of that service. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. One part suffers. Every part suffers with it. And so those of you who walk through this with the Johnsons, you felt some of his pain, some of her pain, the kid's pain. As we went through this surgery process with the grass and were praying for their recovery, we felt their pain as well. But only in the context of a relationship. Here's how it works. When I'm in the garage, I get my finger with that hammer. The only reason I know that hurts because my finger has a relationship to my brain, which has a relationship to my mouth. And ungodly things happen at that moment because they're connected in relationship. When they're not connected in relationship, then damage occurs, and I don't even know it. That is when the body has dysfunction. Anybody wants to be friends with me if they knew me and they think the 
the same thing, and yet you persist in the same relationship because you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And you all do the very thing that God has called us to do, and yet, outside these walls, sure, there's plenty to be done inside these walls. That's great. That's not what this passage is about, and that's not what my heart is communicating to you today. Only then can we be the body of Christ. We welcome back today, Dave McKeever. And Dave's right back here in the service. Everybody say, hi, Dave. Everybody say, welcome back. And so you're thinking, oh, where was Dave? I didn't know Dave was gone. Well, we have two services now, you might not know. But Dave has been, since June, in Laramie, Wyoming, every Sunday, preaching to a church that didn't have a pastor. They didn't have to go. I think Dave did most of the preaching, but Dave can't do it without Kathy. Kathy's sick today, but this is Dave's first Sunday back. While Dave was in Wyoming on pretty much every Sunday over the last four or five months, he didn't cease to be a part of our body. We welcome him back now as a part of our body who is doing exactly what Jesus called him to do every Sunday. This is what God has called you to do. What is it? Your mouth? A set of hands? You all heart? trades off in South Africa and do what God has called you to do? Is it in your workplace where the people need to see something of the light of Jesus? Is it in your family? Is it in your neighborhood? Where is it? Maybe it's in your own heart that you develop your own understanding of who Jesus is. What has God called you to be and to do? There's a reason why Paul says the body of Christ. In this imagery, he details in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives some instructions to the church at Corinth about how to take communion together. When the church at Corinth came together, they were a selfish, terrible, disconnected, full of disunity group of people. So even when they came together to take communion, some people ate before they were all gathered, some people ate selfishly, some people were comparing whose dish was better to See, in the early church, it was more of a full meal and not just the emblems that we participate in on a monthly basis. And so Paul gives us some instructions about communion, and this is what he said in the chapter before this. For I pass on you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread, and he gave, gave thanks to God for it. And then he, what? broken into pieces. This is what Jesus did with the bread. What did the bread represent? His body, which is broken into pieces. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember remember a date or a thing that happened or what time you're supposed to be at a certain meeting. It means to remember the context of what's going on. Why did Jesus do this? What effect does it have on my life? And what does it mean for my future? The context that Jesus is giving to the body of Christ and what it means for it to be broken. This Greek word animasis, so important, so powerful to me that it comprises the hand that's on the inside and the left wrist. 
This anamnesis is what it means to remember is what Paul is saying when he describes the body of Christ in chapter 12. It's broken. Utterly broken. It's in pieces. And so what I want you to remember if you forget everything else is this. The church becomes the body of Christ when we offer to each other and the world around us are broken pieces. That's the only way the church moves forward. And this is so counterintuitive. And you've been told since the beginning of you walking and meeting people and being introduced to people by your parents that you should make a good impression, that you should put your best foot forward. In the body of Christ, it's the opposite. Your best foot forward, oh sure. I mean, I understand that socially. But if the body of Christ is going to be powerful and rich and meaningful, it happens when we bring our broken pieces together. And we do it, no jealousy, no envy, we don't compare. We're not afraid of depending on one another, and we bring our broken pieces together. That is what makes the body of Christ powerful. Why? Well, that's how redemption happens, right? This is how you were saved. The broken body of Jesus. Without the crucifixion, you wouldn't know what grace is. The body has to be broken. So how do other people get redeemed? Well, it's not through your wisdom, I can tell you that. It's not through your grand efforts, although they're important. It's not through your talents, but you bring those, that's good. It's not through your money, although where would we be without that? But it happens because you bring your brokenness to the table. And when you bring your brokenness, then Jesus does the rest. He redeems, he restores, he reconciles, and he builds again. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said it in probably the most powerful and succinct way. Here's what he said. God said to Paul, my grace is all you need, for my power works best in weakness. Stay together with me. My power works best in weakness. In brokenness, our pieces is what we bring. Oh, how I wish this wasn't true. Oh, I'd rather bring my competence to the table as poor as it is. I'd rather bring strength, whatever I have of it. I'd rather bring something that looks presentable. But that's not how it works in the gospel. In the context of the gospel, we work just like that every time. Which means that every time I'm concerned about the appearance, or every time I'm worried about reputation, every time I'm very upset about how things might look for me on the outside, I'm working against the grain. And God's power is not released. And this is why Paul wrote, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow our heads right now, at this time, in this place, knowing and believing that you have called us to be the body of Christ, surrendered fully to you. And so, Lord, right now, would you just bring to mind 
a few moments when we have maybe compared when we shouldn't have compared. When we have let gratitude slip away. When we have allowed envy or jealousy, insecurity or pride to take root. And we ask that you would forgive us. So we offer this confession to you right now. Also know that we have a tendency to, to withdraw from others, to live independently, separate. We find humility and vulnerability very hard to lean into. And so we ask that you would give us the energy to pour into relationships, the courage to be vulnerable. To know that we'll experience rejection and disappointment in every turn. And sometimes that will be because of who we are and what we've done. And so, Lord, right now, would you just call to mind somebody within our church body that you desire for us to move toward relationally, thoughtfully? Just bring them to mind right now. Or speak as we listen. that we would have the, the wisdom and even maybe the courage to reach out and just say, hey, let's spend some time together, spend coffee together, let's have families together, let's have dinner, let's invite these two other families, we'll build connections and relationships. We will not live independently from your body, Lord. We believe that you have designed us to live in community and connection with each other so that when one part suffers, we all suffer with it. When one part is honored, we are all honored with it. And Lord, we ask that you would place us in circumstances that allow us to be appropriately, thoughtfully, bringing our broken pieces to the table, believing that what you say to Paul is true, that your strength is made perfect in weakness. So Lord, help us to open our hands to share weakness. Help us to do that. Help us to be obedient to that truth. So now, Lord, as we worship just a moment, I pray that you would allow some of these thoughts through the power of your Holy Spirit, these thoughts from your word, not my voice, the, the truths from your scripture to endure and that we would carry it with us as we leave this place. So now as we take just a moment to sing a few lyrics together and continue to gaze upon your greatness, your majesty. You will solidify these things in our hearts and lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. And we all say it.